one of the challenges associated with white, white privilege, one of the limitations of white privilege is the cultural self-absorption that it fixes white people in. One of the ways that I help people to step out of it is to use contemplative practices to check in about it. And just begin the interior work of looking at, okay, well, what is my relationality with various people of the global majority? What's my relationality with people of Asian heritage, African heritage, Latinx heritage, indigenous heritage? And if there is no relationality, what's that about? And what is my psychology about in reference to those persons? Because knowing that is information for your life, right? It's not necessary. It's not an act of charity or an act of you know, altruism towards anyone else. It's just, it's an act of, it's a part of one's own self-actualization to explore that. That was Dr. Camila Majid as she opened our dialogue on addressing racism as part of self-actualization. I'm Sam Stern. Welcome to Voices of Esalen. Today I'd like to share with you some personal thoughts in the wake of the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent cultural uprisings in our nation. I and all the other members of the small team who produce Voices of Esalen are dedicated to diversifying the voices who represent our show. We are making a purposeful stance at this moment to dedicate a significant portion of upcoming programming to exploring issues of systemic racism, power, and entrenched privilege with the goal of cultural healing and cross-cultural understanding. To this end, you will hear more from people of color particularly black speakers and leaders. Our guest today is Dr. Camila Majid, mental health therapist, professor, and internationally engaged consultant on social justice and inclusive contemplative pedagogy. The practice of Buddhism spurred a curiosity for Dr. Majid about the causes of unhappiness, particularly unhappiness as created by social oppression. A professor of social work, she is skilled in using Buddhist and contemplative practices to help people heal from racism, sexism, homophobia, and other types of oppression to reclaim joy in their lives. Together we spoke about privilege and some of the limitations it imposes, the various blind spots built into the human potential movement, and how not to get stuck in guilt and shame while grappling with the challenge of confronting racism. I completely enjoyed and benefited from this conversation with Dr. Camila Majid. Dr. Camila Majid, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. You bring a lens of social justice to the practice of many therapies, including mindfulness and mental health therapies. I wanted to ask you today, what what do you find particularly advantageous about this framework? Um, In other words, what are we missing when we approach health practices without taking into account elements like race and privilege? Well... If you think about mental health as being a sense of clarity about uh, one's own interior life and behavioral health about being about one's capacity to relate well uh, interpersonally, then not knowing who we are with reference to how our lives are shaped by oppression and privilege dynamics limits our capacity to heal parts of ourselves that we might not even know are injured. Like it's mm. self, self-knowledge is a part of or the process of self-actualization. And 
self-knowledge is certainly the goal of meditative and contemplative practices as it is the goal of, uh, you know, any kind of therapeutic mental health therapy. Self-knowledge is not complete without an understanding of how oppression and privilege dynamics shape one's psychology and one's cognition, one's inner life, or, you know, one's relationships with others. So, you know, for example, if you think about it um, in terms of sexism, like you can consider how if women, if as women we haven't had a chance to look at, well, how have some of the sexist messages of the world uh, or even of my family, right, been part of how, how have those shaped my, my psychology, my view of myself? Uh, if I've never asked myself the question, then I don't know the answer, you know. And if I don't ask myself the question, how has sexism shaped how I relate to men in uh, relationships, in professional relationships, in personal relationships? If I've never asked that question, then I don't know the answer. So, you know, there's a whole piece of self-knowledge that is important in terms of understanding how all oppression dynamics and all privilege dynamics including those related to racism, impact both our interior process and our relational process. Does that make sense? Yes, I think it does. Are the people who are practicing contemplative practices with you open to understanding how, like, for example, their privilege might play into their experience of the world? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And honestly, even beyond, I'll say that I think... Uh, even beyond uh, people who necessarily, you know, um, thought they were open to it, when they realize that privilege, as I talk about it, is not all good, um, really want to learn more about how to divest themselves of some of the uh, blockages that privilege creates to knowing both oneself and the world more fully. Right, so if you can think of privilege as kind of like blinders that we have on, privilege is the privilege not to have to see things, not to have to know certain things, not to have to experience certain things. Um, so, for example, people who grow up without economic wealth, you know, and economic resources know a lot of things about the reality of the world that people who have a lot of economic privilege don't know. And so, in one way, it's a privilege to have the wealth, but in another way, it's a limitation in that you don't have a clear picture of, you know, what the majority of the world looks like if your life is spent in extreme wealth, and you don't have the resourcefulness and some of the other skills, aspects of your own self that you could develop if you were able to kind of step outside the privilege and um, experience the world in, in more ways than the privilege often allows. Every type of privilege is also uh, a type of limitation. And for that reason, people are very eager to, once, they, once people can see it in that framework, they're eager to step out of it as a, as a limitation that it is and to think about what it would be like to relate to the world and to help build a world where the privileges that all human beings should have are accessible and where the privileges that no human being should have are eliminated. I really like that. Yeah, so the privileges, seeing the privileges as, as, as being limitations as well and really taking that in. 
Thank you. Sure, absolutely. So you are trained at, at helping people transform oppressive patterns via experiences like wonder, awe, and humor. Uh, I, I was interested in, in that because in some senses that aligns you with some of the cornerstones of the human potential movement, which was extremely influential at Ethelon in, in its sort of its, its mission. And Abraham Maslow created this hierarchy of needs, but of course it had no mention of class and no mention of race and no awareness around the privilege that you speak of. So I wanted to ask, how, how does the transformative work that you do uh, address issues such as this? Well, the self-actualization that Maslow talked about is, you know, in my estimation, not possible without this full, more full capacity for an insight into one's own self and oneself in relation to the actualities of the world. So, you know, Maslow and, you know, lots of other folks who, you know, contributed to the human potential movement, you know, had a lot of valuable insights, and they had a lot of privilege that put some limitations around their insights, right? So, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and you, I mean, think about Freud and all the critique that Freud has gotten from women who, from, from women in scholarship, women in scholarship around mental health and psychology and clinical work and clinical mental health work in general. And it's very well, very well stated. And it's, it's 100% accurate for the most part in terms of, you know, Freud was brilliant. And here's all the things Freud couldn't see because of male privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And, and how, and, and the male lens, right? So having a lens, first of all, expanding the lens to include the perspective of people who are not white is hugely important as a, you know, just general correction on piece of clarity for the entire world. Um, most people who have heard me speak have heard me use the term people of the global majority. The term people of the global majority was coined by Dr. Barbara Love, who's Professor Emerita from um, Amherst. And, and one of the, the things that I like to bring that term forward to folks in contemplative circles and education circles. One of the reasons I emphasize that term is, as opposed to using the term people of color, is to highlight the fact that the majority of the world's population is not of European descent, aka white. The majority of the world's population are Asian, Latinx, indigenous, and African heritage. And that's an important shift in the lens. So in terms of thinking about the human potential and self-actualization, if we're only understanding that from the perspective of, you know, white people and as articulated, if we're only understanding human potential and self-actualization from the perspective of white people, then we're not even understanding the potential of white people because in relationality with white people, people of the global majority, people of African, Latinx, and indigenous and Asian heritage have had to understand a lot about the psychology of white people in order to survive white supremacy. But the inverse mm. is not true. So, so that there's just a huge opportunity for us to step into, to advance the, the knowledge of human potential by expanding who contributes, who, what thought leaders contribute to our understanding of human potential and to make sure that our 
conceptualization of human potential is not just something that's articulated to us by a few good white men, but also includes the perspective of many people of the global majority of various genders, right? So, Mm. yeah. That is great. Yeah, I'm I'm so appreciative that we're having this conversation because it's it's such an important blind spot that you can uh, you know I've had so many conversations around human potential and have never, not once, spoken about about diversity or about the uh, the presence of uh, as you say the global majority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you like I said, if you think about it, W. E. B. Du Bois, who is you know you know major uh, thought leader. Um, pioneering American thought leader talked about this role, this double consciousness, for example, that African Americans, because of the subjugation of African people in America, have always had to have this dual consciousness where we were aware of our own interior lives and interior processes, right? I'm aware, my ancestors were aware of their full humanity. They knew that they were humans, that they were not slaves, that they were not three-fifths human, right? They knew that they had, you know, they had their thoughts, they had feelings, they knew themselves to be fully human. And they also knew and were able to step inside the consciousness of people who were, you know, trafficking them and, knew what needed to be, you know, said to help that person maintain their sense of self in order to keep them their own self safe. So as is kind of replicated in what, you know, we can see a lot of black parents talking to their uh, children now saying, okay, you, you know, you're amazing, you're wonderful, you're talented, you're free, you have full autonomy, and you know that to be true, and you still have to really subjugate yourself and be very, not assert any of those rights if you are ever, you know, engaged with a white police officer. So what, you know, what black people have always had to cultivate from a very young age is an awareness of power and privilege dynamics and an awareness of what's needed to keep people in power feeling at ease enough for them to be safe. And that's an awful thing to have to negotiate and one of the things that grows out of having to negotiate it is an awareness of how your words impact and actions may be impacting other people. You know, there's a million unfortunate things about that, but one of the many unfortunate things about that is that white people don't have that same opportunity and don't, you know, regularly assess, you know, how am I, how am I presenting, how am I you know, considering what is going on in the interior life of the African heritage or Latinx or indigenous person that I'm interfacing with. You know, that it's it's kind of, there's one of the challenges associated with white, white privilege, one of the limitations of white privilege is the cultural self-absorption that it fixes white people in. One of the ways that I help people to step out of it is to use contemplative practices to check in about it at different points in the day and just begin the interior work of looking at, okay, well, what is my relationality with various people of the global majority? What's my relationality with people of Asian heritage, African heritage, Latinx heritage, indigenous heritage? And if there is no relationality, what's that about? And what is my psychology about in reference to those persons? Because knowing that, is information for your life, right? It's not, necessar- it's not an act of charity or an act of, you know, altruism towards 
anyone else. It's just it's an act of it's a part of one's own self actualization to explore that and then to consider well what would it be like to be more engaged uh, in the world, particularly a world that is dominated that has the majority of population who are not white, right? So if I'm cutting myself off from engaging at my full potential with the majority of the world, that's a significant limitation that I'm allowing white privilege to have um, over my life. Wow. <laughs> this, is, this is huge. Thank you. Yeah, Thank I you mean, so much. Really I'm, is, I'm really, really yeah. something, right? Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, I love the, the point that you're making that it's, it's not an act of altruism to consider the, the, your relationality here, this is a this is a way to self actualization to a deeper kind Absolutely. of connection with self. So, what is it like to speak about race and privilege to a, a largely white or largely privileged audience? Assuming that, I mean, it sounds like you have done that. So, like, what is it like, and what are the what are, what are the do you think are the impediments to understanding that first come up for a listenership that might not fully apprehend their own privilege with, within a culture built on systemic racism? Well, I'll answer the second question first in terms of, uh, you know, what do I think the impediments are for the listenership? Um, and I think the first impediment is, is the kind of emotional and psychological resistance, what we, what we in the mental health profession call resistance. And it's just the, the little psychic tug we feel when it comes to looking at anything that's difficult or not fun. That doesn't look like fun to look at at the at the at the outset, you know. It's, I mean, and resistance happens in the therapeutic context. It's like it's, therapy is all about resistance, you know. People not negotiating resistance and us not wanting to turn towards the more painful aspects of ourselves. So I think one of the impediments that people, um, that listeners, that that you know, people who are beginning to look at and think about racism face is just their own resistance and. That shows up as lots of things. It shows up as apathy and indifference and, oh, I just don't want to, you know, a kind of the petulant um, child within all of us that's just like, I just want to do something more fun than this, you know, um, and doesn't, that the part of us that doesn't, doesn't want to, you know, kind of go do the work of transmuting the painful into growth, doesn't want to navigate the growth process. And so that's part of it. And, and sometimes it comes out as a little, a sense, a little or big sense of guilt or shame, but for a lot of white people, turning towards racism and and looking at it, it just you know produces a lot of guilt and shame. And because of that, though, it's, that's the reason that I really encourage people to not get stuck there. Because if you're stuck there, then again, that that's a blockage from self-actualization. You know, because guilt and shame are are paralytics. You can't really grow from there. You have to use them. You have to move through them. They they are prompts to look at places where you might take responsibility and do things differently in your life, as opposed to places to just kind of give into despair or indifference about. And so I think those are challenges. I think uh, learning from. Uh, people of the global majority, learning from black people, learning from Latinx people, learning from indigenous people, and learning from uh, Asian heritage people is sometimes new for white people. So that that alone can be an impediment um, to consider, you know, how many, you know, black teachers have you had and how, how, because of the way racism operates, 
if there's a very subtle message that white people are are just more knowledgeable. I mean, it's subtle now. It's subtle now in some ways, but in lots of ways, it's not that subtle. I was listening to someone talk about what they had and hadn't learned in school and how they had never learned about the Tulsa massacre until the Watchmen came out and, you know, how they were, you know, history major, right, American history major. So it's, it's this place where the educa- education has been so led by white people and, and excluded information about people of the global majority that just the process of learning from a person who is not white it in, it involves kind of waking up to can I even listen here, right? That there might be some barriers to even listening well and absorbing the information well and valuing the information because a lot of what we have been taught to value is what comes from us comes to us from a few good white men, right? Or a few good white women, right? That we haven't necessarily been taught to value what's taught to us by people of the global majority in general, and especially women of the global majority. So I think those are some of the impediments to understanding, you know, all of those might be impediments for understanding for the listenership. And that, that said, though, I think that I am continually impressed and, you know, not even impressed. I'm just, it's like, I, I am, I continue to be pleased with how, naturally people open it's like because nobody wants to be stuck in guilt or shame or apathy or indifference or out whatever there's nobody wants to be stuck in anything so all I have to do is kind of make the invitation and what I do in the workshops that I lead is you know I, I make invitations I don't say this is what you have to do you have to do this or you have to try this I say well, try this try this try this on as an affirmation and try this on as a meditation or how about we explore this question and when you do it people just open because there is as much as there is natural resistance there is also a natural human inclination towards growth so you know and there's a and as much as that petulant child in us wants to shut down and do nothing that petulant that same child is also curious and it wants to find out and it wants to see if it can do more Right, so as soon as I create the space for that in my workshops, for that curious child, the one we were, you know, at one years old or two years old when we wanted to, you know, be with all kinds of people with all kinds of, you know, variations, and we didn't know that girls weren't supposed to do certain things with girls and boys didn't do certain things with boys, and we didn't know any of that stuff. We saw humans a certain way, there is a part of us that wants to get back to that clarity of vision uh, that we had about all humans being good as young people and to be able to actually operationalize that as adults. So with all the impediments that exist, I, I find that my, my listenership, my students in every realm, whether I'm teaching faculty or whether I'm teaching meditation practitioners or whether I'm teaching, in whatever you know, activists, that everybody wants to open that and access that uh, joyful curiosity and connection and deepen, you know, that sense of wonder at our 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 profound interdependence and our profound uh, natural inclination to support one another. Everybody wants to get that back. 
So despite mm-hmm. the impediments, we get it, we get it done, and I, I'm always happy to see it. Do you have optimism around this particular moment? Do you, do you believe it might represent a sea change? We, we're seeing the, the dawning of a new era of consciousness uh, around race, class, privilege, diversity, equality, or do you, or do you feel it's more of a discrete moment? Well, it, I think you could probably tell a little bit from my uh, overall tone that I am an eternal optimist. I see op- I am optimistic. <laughs> I am optimistic. You know, I have resilient optimism, and I talk and teach a lot about resilient optimism and how we make our optimism uh, resilient. And, it, you know, again, it's, it's cultivating a capacity and it's a, a portal uh, a part of the self-actualization is cultivating that resilient optimism because you're able to, from that perspective, see opportunities in every crisis. So both the, both the pandemics, the dual pandemics of racism and COVID-19, the dual and interrelated pandemics, uh, we don't have time to talk about it today, but I'll be, you know, leading some sessions on the related, the, what's the relationship between these? They're not just co-arising. They're also related. Einstein talked about this. Albert Einstein talked about racism as a, as a, a, a disease in 1946. You know, just one of many people who, you know, used this model, to, used that disease model to describe the pathology of racism and the way that it has infected not just systems, but people's personal psychology and relationality. So, you know, yes, this is a wonder. This is a, a wonderful opportunity because it is so painful and it is so clear. And it's clear to folks who even had so much privilege that they couldn't see it before. Now, certainly it's been clear to people who don't have privilege and who've been experiencing anti-black racism and particularly anti-black violence since, I mean, anti-black violence is the root, is the, found, is the foundation of, is part of the foundation of the American Republic. Like, the country is founded on anti-black racism. There's a wonderful article that won the Pulitzer Prize, 2020 Pulitzer Prize. It's part of the New York Times Magazine 1619 series. And Nicole Hannah-Jones article entitled, America Was Not a Democracy Until African Americans Made It One, I think that's the title, talks about how the, the, the country was built on both an ideal and a lie. It was built on this ideal of liberty, and it was built on this lie of liberty and equality. It was built on ideals of liberty and equality as well as the lie of liberty and equality. And the you know, violence and brutality against African Americans was very much a foundation of the country, from the kidnapping and enslavement and centuries of torture and forced sexual trafficking, that all of that is what the country is founded on. So people are finally having to say, you know, this isn't just about police violence and a few random bad apples. It's about the fact that everything that is owned, quote unquote owned, um, in this country was, you know, in terms of land, was stolen, you know, from Native American people and was developed by people who were themselves stolen and trafficked. And to be, just turn towards that as a truth and say, okay, that is the truth. And to think about what's my personal relationality with that truth, right? You know, what, how do I benefit from it? How has my family 
over the generations that we've been in American citizens? How has my family grown and benefited from the enslavement, from Jim Crow, from the disenfranchising of black people? How, what's my relationality to it? And what do I want my relationality uh, to be like going forward? So, yeah, I think we're at a moment where people are kind of finally facing who, what America really is and how it got started and, you know, what needs to happen in order for it to repay its karmic debt, to cleanse its uh, karmic stains, and that happens on lots of levels. It happens on the intrapsychic, intrapersonal level, on the interpersonal level, certainly on systemic and social levels. Yeah. Mm. Dr. Camilo Majid, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Be- before we close our conversation, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share how people could find out more about you and more about the work that you offer. Absolutely. Uh, well, if you have a question and you are interested in perhaps having a workshop or a dialogue with your community, whether it's a school or a business or an educational institution, if you'd like to have me help you all facilitate a dialogue around any of the topics that we've talked about today, including how contemplative practices resource the work of doing this, because it's hard stuff to look at and it's hard stuff to talk about, and that's why the meditative practices are so useful. So if you're interested in having some kind of workshop like that, then just feel free to reach out to me directly by email at camilamajid at yahoo.com. And stay tuned. I'm, I've got some number of uh, events planned. I'm also on Facebook as Camila Majid, and that's another way to find out some of the things that I'm doing. Dr. Majid, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. No portion of this podcast may be duplicated or distributed without Dr. Camila Majid's written permission. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Terry Gilby, Tanya Ruse, Michelle Broderick, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, and Kelly McKay. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. You can find all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast player, as well as at esalen.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.